The name of the talk tonight is The Attack of Mara. Sounds like one of those old Japanese movies, sci-fi. It's kind of, I guess, an old Indian movie. There are a number of stories that are told in the myth of the Buddha's struggle for enlightenment, for his fulfillment of his liberation. And I've woven together a few from the various canons, from the Pali canon, from the Chinese canon, from the Tibetan uh, uh, canon. And so as the Bodhisattva at that time was sitting under the Bodhi tree, determined to awaken, He was assailed by the evil one, the tempter. This is a spiritual archetype in every tradition. It's also a lived experience which you may have been noticing as you sit here with your determination and your resolve. This is Mara. And Mara is the evil one in the Buddhist mythology. And his job is to try to obstruct the Bodhisattva, to stop him, to derail him, to mystify him, to scare him out of his enlightenment, out of his liberation. And so as the Bodhisattva is sitting there under the Bodhi tree, Mara attacks him. And he attacks him first by trying to frighten him using a whole host of demons. And Mara himself, it is said, assumes a fearsome guise with a thousand arms and that his demons make eerie noises guaranteed to generate fear and that rain comes and hail and showers of fire and thunder and an earthquake in order to try and scare the Bodhisattva, out of his seat, out of his place. And you could reflect on how you would respond or how you've been responding (laughs) as Mara's come here with some eerie sounds at times, with some rain or hail in your mind or your heart. You might have had some showers of fire arise in your belly. Well, what would happen if there was an earthquake here? It could actually happen, you know. <laughs> I was once teaching at Yucca Valley um, in the desert. And it was about the second or third day of, I think, a 10-day retreat. And uh, we're sitting there. You're right on the desert floor. You're not even up at all like we are here, but you're right, right on the ground. And you just felt this rumble move through. And my uh, friend, co-teacher, Deborah Chamberlain teacher, uh, Deborah Chamberlain Taylor, we were teaching about sensations that day. And she said, without missing a beat, she said, feel those sensations. (laughs) A couple people got, got quite excited. But this didn't shake the Bodhisattva as he sat there with his resolve. 
And so it's said that Mara renewed his attacks using the allurements of his three daughters. You may have seen some of his daughters while you were sitting here. Maybe some of you may have seen some of his sons. Depends on your taste. But his daughters traditionally are called tanha, which is craving, arati, boredom, and raga, lechery. And they conspire, it said, and they conspire, they're very sophisticated, so they know that men's tastes vary, as do women's. And so they, they assume forms ranging from, ranging from those of virgins to mature women. And they display wiles, which it is said an ordinary man's heart would have burst. <laughs> or hot blood would have gushed from his mouth. <laughs> or he would have gone mad or crazy or would have shriveled up. <laughs> they can be scary, some of those women. Dried up. He would have withered like a cut green rush. But our hero (laughs) was unmoved by their charms and wiles, and he rejected them poetically. (laughs) And I'll read you just a couple of these similes, which you can hear his steadfastness, his determination, the power of his sincerity, his faith, and his commitment. He says, fools, you have tried to split a rock by poking it with lily stems. You have tried to chew up iron with your teeth. You have tried to push down a great tree with your chest. And so he continued to sit just as you have so far. And when all these armies of Mara had failed, Mara comes again to attack the Bodhisattva directly. And this is now the penultimate moment before freedom, before liberation, before enlightenment. And in this penultimate moment, the attack comes where Mara challenges his right to sit there directly. He challenges the seat that he sits on. He says, what right do you have to think you should be liberated? Who do you think you are? What gives you the right? Mara comes as attack, as judgment, as criticism in this penultimate moment. I was thinking a little bit about how it would come in my own mind. And I'm Jewish, and I thought, oh, it'd come like, who do you think you are, Mr. Big Shot? It'd have a little Jewish mother flavor to it. Just, just my mind. And so judgment comes to question, undermine, tries to derail the bodhisattva. And the Buddha, sitting there, feeling the attack, touches the ground. That's a famous earth-touching mudra, which you see here. 
And this mudra, it's a wonderful mudra. And often, especially when I'm on the cushion, when things are hard, I'll actually sit in that mudra just to touch the ground because he touches the ground asking the earth to be his witness to acknowledge his right and our right to awaken. Which is our birthright. And we are of the earth and the earth supports us in seeking to understand, to see the truth, and to be liberated. And in the next moment, the Buddha is liberated as the earth supports him. Just a little bit of the poetry in one of the canons, it said, the heaven shone, the moon like a maiden with a smile, and a sweet-smelling shower of flowers fell down wet with dew. And this is the grace pointed at mythologically, poetically, of awakening. And I think it's really important to look at this, where this attack of judgment comes in the myth and story of the Buddha. It's at the penultimate moment. When you read myth, it's important to see, well, where are things in a myth? And so being placed in this moment, we see that it's in the final threshold before awakening. So if you've been experiencing some judgment here, you may be closer than you think. But I'd like to talk about this manifestation of Mara and look at it together. I'd like to reflect on it together. Look at it. What is it? How does it come? What's its function? And how to work with it skillfully. And we know it. We all know it. It's the judge, the critic, the inner grumbling. Somebody wrote a book, not my favorite word, but psychologically it's um, known as the superego. And it's the mind of criticism, of denigration, of condemnation, of aggrandizement. This is the mind that is constantly evaluating and judging It's constantly assessing, reacting to, and commenting on everything. You name it, it's got an opinion. (laughs) Have you seen that? I mean, it's really... You have to respect how pervasive it is. And it's reacting, it's commenting, it's constantly putting its stamp of approval or disapproval on each moment. And it sounds a little bit like this. It says here, ideally I should be here and feel good, or feel welcoming towards everybody, or compassionate. Or ideally I should get as much as I want of something, or ideally I should not be nervous or upset, or ideally I should not need to practice at all. Or ideally, I should be somewhere else, water skiing. (laughs) Or, you know, this chair I'm sitting in should be a couch. That would really be better, right? What is implied in these thoughts? Whether you think something positive or negative, isn't it implied that you know how things should be? 
Isn't it implied that you feel qualified to judge reality? Isn't it implied that you are qualified to say what you and other people should feel and what should happen or should not happen? In Christian theology, this function is reserved for God. If you look at it really closely, you will see that every minute you're saying, you know better than God. Things should be this way, not that. There shouldn't be clouds today. I don't like clouds. There should be sun. There is always a movement of judgment. It's from Hamid Ali. In our practice, this is a form of Mara. This is Mara attempting to unseat us from our determination to awaken, to see things as they are, not with some idea about how they should be or shouldn't be, to see the truth of things. This function, this Mara, is always evaluating ourselves, our experience, others, who we are, where we are, what is happening. And often it's got a very negative, denigrating, dismissive, attacking tone or flavor to it. This is the mind of rejection. Whether we're saying it's good or bad, there is a rejection here of what's actually happening. Because it rejects things as they are. This is not the mind that realizes that things are impermanent or selfless. This mind really believes what it's saying. It really thinks it's solid. It knows. And again, I think it's very important to be respectful of this psychic structure, which is really all it is, because it's pandemic. It's pandemic in our society. It's pandemic right here in each of us. It's in, and it's incredibly creative. <laughs> I mean, it's creative in the sense that it'll judge whatever's here. You should, you shouldn't, you're bad, you're good, you're stupid, you're smart, you're ugly, you're beautiful, you're wrong, you're right, you're great, you're not great, you're the best, you're the worst, you're hip, you're square, you're smart, you're stupid. This is the mind that lacks compassion. It's really the mind of suffering. So I'd like to look at it with you in a little bit of detail tonight for our reflection. And I'd like to do it in this spirit, in the spirit of what's called confessing our delusion. There's a couplet from, I believe it's Dogen. He says, sentient beings are deluded about enlightenment. Buddhas are enlightened about delusion. 
Sentient beings are deluded about enlightenment. We get all caught up, what is it, how is it, oh, it's this, it's that, we think about it. Buddhas don't get caught up in that. Buddhas are enlightened about delusion. That they pay attention to their delusion, they acknowledge their delusion, they confess their delusion over and over again until there's no delusion. And it's a practice in the Zen tradition to confess one's delusion, to think of practice in that way. And I like it. I do that practice. And so, remember at the beginning of the retreat, or at some point I said, uh, to study Buddhism is to study the self. Part of studying the self is to study our delusion, to study Mara, to study this critical, difficult, assessing, evaluating mind to see it for what it is. And for me, this mind, I'm going to confess my delusion here, so watch your judgments, okay? (laughs) (laughs) This mind showed itself the first moment I went to meditate. This is almost 20 years ago now, and I I wanted to learn how to meditate. And somebody told me about, oh, there's this guy teaching meditation. And just to give you a little background, I was a musician. I, was, um, I grew up a little prematurely involved with the beatnik scene. When I was 12 and 13, 14, I, I had an older brother who, and a sister-in-law who were real beatniks, and so I got to hang out with them. And then I was involved with the hippie scene and the radical left. And, and then I was a musician involved with a very avant-garde kind of music. And I lived in a, a certain world. Um, that was quite limited, but I loved very much. And when I went to go to this meditation, I walked in, there was kind of a new age guru. It was about 400 people, and they looked really clean cut and, you know, bushy tailed and bright eyed. And I'm like this kind of hipster, punky, you know, attitude, a little cynical, definitely cynical about meditation. And, my, and I walked in, and my first thought, it was like just a bubble in my head. This is, this is confessing my delusion, was, oh, these people have never gotten laid. <laughs> this is honest to God. That was my thought. They all look so pure. <laughs> I thought... <laughs> I later found that it wasn't true especially of this guru. (laughs) It's true. So one of the first things we want to look at (laughs) in the judging mind is how we judge others, which is what my mind did when I walked into that situation. And I think one of the first realizations that I had, one of the first insights I had as I really started to practice meditation was, it's all us. I mean, and again, I came from living in a very small segment of society that had a lot of attitude about everybody outside of that segment. And um, I still feel a great affinity with that segment of society. But it really, it was so startling to sit and see, oh, it's all us. It's all us. 
And that, that doesn't mean my judgments have gone away of others. It hasn't. But there's something that I learned that's deeper than my judging mind when I realized that insight, that it's all us. And I've watched over the years my practice, how it's impacted me, um, really open to people. And I, I had a, quite an interesting experience recently um, of this, of how powerful this practice is to let us to al- allow us to let go of this judging mind. Not get rid of it. I'll talk about that later, but to let go of it, to not be bound by it. Because again, I have plenty of judgments. Um, I'm the aversive type on the Buddhist cosmology. I can judge like crazy. Um, but I was watching some, there were a number of nights PBS was doing a series about presidents, and I watched a bunch of them. And what I was struck by was watching the segment on Lyndon Johnson, who as a young man, I hated, really, and was, I, I did everything I could to work against him and his policies and the war in Vietnam and bring his presidency down. And I had a lot of hatred towards him, malice. And what was so amazing was to watch his story of him and his presidency and feel total compassion for him and yet not agree with any of the decisions he made. That there was a different me now who could actually still totally disagree with what he did, and I do. And yet I felt total compassion because I could see his suffering in it all. I could see that actually he was totally trapped and unfree. And it doesn't, again, I don't condone anything he did because of that. But there was a whole different feeling for, my, for him as a person and his suffering. And the Buddha talks, he gives us instructions about how to think about it. Well, how do we judge other people? How do we evaluate? And so I'll just offer these to you. And they're, they're really simple and lovely. He says, it is by living a life in common with a person, not separate, that we learn of that person's moral character. And then only if having insight ourselves We have watched a person for a long time. This is how we can understand a person. It is only in conversation with a person that we learn of that person's wisdom and clarity of heart. And then only if having insight ourselves, we have paid attention for a long time. It is during times of trouble that we learn of another's fortitude And then only if having insight ourselves, we have paid careful attention for a long time. These are some guidelines about how to evaluate another person. Now, what I find in reality is my mind makes judgments immediately. And Retreat is a good place to see this. Have you noticed? We judge one another here. It's happening. We don't have, again, we're confessing our delusion, right? We, we don't have to judge 
the fact that we judge others. We want to see it for what it is so we can awaken, so we can be free of the judging mind. We judge others for how they sit, how they walk, how they eat. Whatever people do here, we make judgments about it. And part of the guideline not to look at other people, not to look around when you're here in the room, not to look around when you're eating down in the, hall, in the dining hall, is for your protection. It's to protect you against your judging mind that starts to say, oh, look at them, look at how they're eating, or look at how wonderful they are, they're walking slow. Either, either um, you know, being condemning of somebody or idealizing somebody. That the instruction is actually a protection for you. So you don't have to deal with the judging mind so much. And I, I, it took me a number of retreats to really get that. Like I remember the first retreat, first couple retreats, I would look around a lot in the dining hall to see who was eating slow, you know, or who wasn't. And then I would judge them. And then I would, you know, of course, I'd be totally not paying attention to myself at all. And it's suffering to do that. It's our own suffering to do that. I remember talking with Howie Cohn, who's going to be here for the second three weeks teaching. I remember just how we talked about how actually staying present with our own experience is the truest refuge we know. Looking around, figuring out what somebody else is doing or thinking or feeling. It's just imagining. And then usually I'm judging how they're thinking or feeling <laughs> based on my fantasy. <laughs> there is some humor to this. You have to acknowledge. I'll tell you my mind. Now, I, again, I'm someone, when I do retreat now, I don't look at anybody. I once sat a retreat, and five days into the retreat, they said, um, you know, do metta for the person on either side of you. And I realized I didn't know who was on either side of me. And yet, I could make judgments about their socks. <laughs> this is true. I would, I would think, oh, why are they wearing those socks again today? <laughs> oh, those socks look cushy. I wish I had some of those. <laughs> and this is just confessing my delusion again. Ajahn Chah offered these guidelines for us. He said, don't watch other people. This will not help your practice. If you are annoyed, watch the annoyance in your own mind. If others' discipline is bad or they are not good monks, this is not for you to judge. You will not discover wisdom watching others. Just that. I mean, that's, that's a beautiful piece of dharma. You will not discover wisdom watching others. Monk's discipline, our discipline here, this form, is to use for your own meditation. It's not a weapon to use to criticize or find fault. No one can do your practice for you, nor can you do practice for anyone else. Be mindful of your own experience. Now, one of the versions of this judging mind that comes with judging others 
in Buddhist psychology is called conceit. And it's a different way of thinking about conceit, although it it's, uh, has its association with the way we usually think about conceit. Conceit in Buddhist psychology is what's called the comparing mind. And they talk about it in terms of there's the inferiority conceit, like, oh, I'm not, I'm horrible yogi, I'm really bad, and they're doing it really good, and everybody's really getting enlightened but me, the inferiority conceit, the superiority conceit, I'm the best yogi, I just sat for however long, nobody's in the hall, look how good I am, everybody else is just, they're not really doing it. And then there's the third version of conceit, which I really love. And this is the equality conceit. This is the conceit is that we're the same as other people. Isn't that interesting? I love that piece in Buddhist psychology. And what they're pointing at is whether it's superior or inferior or the same, we're resting our understanding on the idea of a discrete, concretized, separate self. And so it doesn't matter whether it's better or worse or equal, it's delusion. And this is such a deep kalesa, such a deep uh, entanglement of mind, habit of mind, conditioning of mind, that in Buddhist psychology they say, this is not released, this, this goes through the first three stages of enlightenment and is not released until the fourth and final stage. So, it might not be gone too soon, okay? <laughs> and it points us to something here that, that I think is very important which I like to just mention when I think about this, and think about how Mara comes, judging others, comparing. In the Buddhist scripture, one of the most interesting relationships is Buddha's relationship to Mara. Mara comes when the Buddha is the Bodhisattva, tries to frighten him out of his awakening, What's really interesting to me is Mara keeps coming even after the Buddha's totally and fully and completely liberated. I I find that fascinating, and I find that a great relief that however liberated we're going to get, it looks like Mara keeps coming. We don't have to think we're doing it wrong when Mara shows up. One of the yogis here um, told me a funny story in an interview about uh, this kind of mind, the comparing mind. She said she was cleaning, um, doing her yogi meditation job, vacuuming in one of the buildings, and a door was open, and she looked out the door, and she could see the window to the room and the stream beyond. And she said she looked, and she started comparing. She said, oh, oh, how beautiful to have a room with a window and a stream. I wish I had a room with a window and a stream. And then she said she thought about it for a few minutes and she realized she did have a room (laughs) with a window and a stream. 
<laughs> I think that's very important to see. We believe these comparisons, <laughs> whether they're true or not. <laughs> we believe the judging mind, and actually it's not true. It's never true. It may have a grain of truth, and I'll say more about that later, but it's actually not true. And I, I love that story. We really laughed about that. So, guess what? If you're judging others a lot, guess who's next? Usually you're judging yourself even more. So we want to just look at this again in the spirit of acknowledging or confessing our delusion. Not to add judgment upon judgment. That's not what we're doing. We're trying to see things as they are and then see what happens as we bring everything, our delusion, in the light of mindfulness. So judging ourselves, again, an internal epidemic. And we judge how we're doing, or what we're doing, or where we're doing it. Here on retreat about, oh, I'm not, I'm not doing it enough. It's, it's interesting that, to come in and hear people who are doing the practice well, thinking they're not doing it enough, or good enough. How do you know? <laughs> At least let us say. And we don't exactly know, but, but we can acknowledge that. People judge their breath. <laughs> you know, I mean, we do. Oh, that's a good breath. That's a bad breath. <laughs> you know? I mean, it really, it's good to laugh about it. It really is. Woody Allen's made millions of dollars laughing about it. We judge what we're feeling. I should be feeling something else. Oh, this is bad. This is horrible. Or this is great. Oh, I'm feeling good now. Where does, isn't that amazing? We just keep judging experience. The really, we laugh, but there's a tragedy here too. Because often we really judge ourselves extremely harshly when we're most vulnerable when we're feeling most tender, most hurt, most scared. Mm. When our sense of self is challenged here, what I've noticed for myself is the judge comes up, Mara comes big time. Just like when the Buddha was challenging his whole reality. When he was liberated from self, Mara came. And I see this in the yogis who come. I see it in you. And I've seen it in myself. The whole sense of self gets shaky. And all of a sudden people are saying, oh, I'm being, I'm being, I'm full of pity for myself now. They say harshly. You know, when really they're having a very hard time. Because that whole constellation that we know is Eugene or whatever your name is, we're starting to see that it's a house of cards. And that house of cards doesn't like to be shaky, doesn't like to know that it's a house of cards. I mean, we spent, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years building up this nice 
house of cards, putting the hard cards in place, gluing them together, super glue, you know. And there's nothing there except the construct that's empty. The judge doesn't exactly like it when that happens. So there's the obvious, judging the breath or judging, you know, I look ugly today. But then there's a more subtle judge that comes. And people often, what's interesting is people often can't see it because they're feeling so bad or it's so difficult for them at the moment. They actually believe this is part of it, the, the criticism. This is where it's important to see the difference between the truth and the judgment. You are feeling bad, but you don't need to condemn yourself for feeling bad. You may be scared, but the idea that you're a wimp, which, you know, comes, or that you're a something, you're not a man, or you're not a this, that's the judge. And it's important to be able to discriminate moment by moment. Yes, I'm afraid. That's true. But here's the judge calling me names or somehow making me feel bad for my experience. And that is Mara's job, to take us away from what's here exactly right now. What our experience is right now. And it can even, it even happens with good experience. You start feeling good and then you start telling yourself, oh, I'm great, this is wonderful, I'm going to tell everybody about it. Boom, where are you in relation to what's here, the bliss? or the equanimity, or the joy, or the peace, you're gone. Mara derails you, moves you off your seat. One of the ways we know we have a self is when we feel bad about it. This is a little bit my idea, but one of the ways we really know, I know, I'm me, is when there's some kind of critical thing happening that's so familiar that I know I'm me then. <laughs> oh, it's painful. And, and um, yeah. And there's a piece to this I also want to mention, which is about perfection. Do we have any perfectionists here in the crowd? (laughs) One of the many viruses of this epidemic is the idea that we have to be perfect. And I want to, I said this earlier, I want to say it again. You can't do this practice right, meaning perfect. You can't. I've never met anybody who can. Everybody gets lost. Everybody gets confused. Everybody I've met suffers. That's not the problem. The problem is when Mara comes and makes some kind of judgment about our experience. So you can't do it right. And again, you can't do it wrong because it's your sincerity which is most important. Not how you function with this technique, this practice that we're doing. Mm -hmm. Oscar Wilde said, it is not the perfect, but the imperfect that is in need of our love. Be imperfect, 
Allow your imperfection. In the Sutra on the Verses of the Faith Mind, it said, One thing, all things, move among and intermingle without distinction to live in this realization of the thusness of reality, to live in this realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. Opening and allowing yourself just to be here exactly as you are, without anxiety about non-perfection. And, you know, Mara came to the Buddha. He would come. He'd be mean to the Buddha. There was one place where the Buddha was in pain on account of a foot injury. And Mara comes and says to him, What, are you stupefied that you lie down? Or else entranced by some poetic flight? What happened to your aims that you're supposed to serve? Why do you dream away intent on sleep? What's wrong with you? Do you know that voice that comes when you're having a hard time? You're in some pain? Oh, now you're really not doing it. Oh. <laughs> so the function of Mara, the function of the judge or the critic or the superego, is number one, one, one of the ways to reflect or think about it is that it keeps us in a very small band of emotional, psychological, and spiritual reality. That if you start to expand that band of what, who we are and what reality is, Mara comes and says, what are you doing? Get back there. Don't get enlightened. Don't go there. Don't do that. Everybody will think, who are you, Mr. Big Shot, to be so happy? or to be scared. <clears throat> it functions to reify, to solidify, to concretize the self, and to take us away from direct and immediate experience, to detail, derail our attempts to see clearly, to understand, to realize our true and essential nature. And again, there's usually, what I've found, is there's often a grain of truth. So it's very tricky that way. Something's happening. There is a pain in my knee. I'm having a hard time with it. But I'm not a bad yogi because I'm having a hard time with it. I'm a yogi who's sincerely practicing and having a hard time with it. Or a fear. Or even if I'm looking around and I'm having trouble staying inside myself. And then, the, then it comes, oh, you can't even do this practice right, you know. They give you the instructions a million times. Why can't you do it? You're the only one who can't do it. <clears throat> so it concretizes the self. And it furthermore separates us from one another. It keeps us separate from our own experience. 
from the experience of others, from the world, from the mystery that John talked about last night, from the great unknown of what is actually happening here. Because as you notice, the judge knows. But when the judge is gone, who knows? So here again is Hamid Ali talking about the, what he calls the superego. He says, superego includes the ideals and principles of judgment. It is the seat of what is customarily called the conscience. And it develops mainly by internalizing and identify with prohibitions, rules, values, preferences of our parents and society, basically. And from a spiritual perspective, it is the inner coercive agency that stands against the expansion of awareness and spiritual development, regardless of how mild or reasonable it becomes or may seem. It is a substitute and a cruel one for direct perception and knowledge. Spiritual development, awakening, requires that in time there be no internal coercive agencies. There will be instead inner regulation based on objective perception, understanding, and love. The best approach is to decrease the power and influence of the critic and to replace it with awareness as much as possible, all the way to the final and complete dethronement of the superego. Sounds good. How do we do that? What, is it, what does that actually mean in our practice? How do we work with it? The key phrase that you read over and over again when you read of Buddha's relationship with Mara. Mara comes, and he comes in all these different forms to the Buddha. He comes disguised in, in all these different disguises. And the Buddha's sitting there, and the Buddha says this. He says, I see you, Mara. And Mara says, the Blessed One has seen me and slinks away. The Buddha is mindful of Mara. This is how to dethrone Mara. This is the main skillful means that we know. Can you see Mara for what he is? Can you notice when Mara comes obviously as a great demon or more unobviously in its many disguises? You can notice sometimes, I, I have a little antenna now developed for Mara in this way. And I kind of do it this way. When I'm having a hard time, difficult to, there's, first of all, there's the obvious, you know, I'm great, I'm horrible. It's clear, this is voice in my head, and it's just a voice in my head. It's just a thought. It's Mara. And there's often not such a charge with that. It's just, okay, I see you, Mara. The thought actually goes away doesn't impact me. There's times when I'm having a difficult time, I, I keep a little eye out for Mara. 
I'll be scared or lost or whatever it is, unconcentrated. And I'll just, I'll just kind of say, well, is there any judgment here? Just, I don't even say it at this point. I just, it's just part of my mindfulness. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of saying to myself, I'm really doing bad now. And then I say, oh, I see you, Mara. I let Mara, I let the fact that I'm having a hard time often be a red flag to just see if there's any judgment around. Sometimes if, a, if I can't contact an experience or I feel bad about an experience, I just wonder, is there some judgment here? And then I'll see, oh, I'm having an experience. I feel bad about it because there's some judgment. And then as I see the judgment, that goes away. And then I feel the direct experience of sorrow or sadness or lostness or loneliness. And that's different than the badness of feeling bad that I'm feeling lonely. And it's actually a very subtle discrimination to see the disguise of Mara as it comes to derail me, to take me away from my direct experience of loneliness. So seeing it for what it is, a thought, an idea, a judgment, an attitude, and that we don't have to believe it. It's not true. It's Mara. Another way sometimes one can recognize Mara is when you're feeling that kind of attack. Because you can tell. It's like if somebody would attack you and you feel bad. Often that's a, a quality of this inner feel, flavor of Mara. Sometimes if you're body-oriented, you'll notice there's a contraction in your body when you, there's an attack like that, when Mara is coming and trying to derail you. If you're heart-centered, you might feel it emotionally. If you're head-centered, you might feel it as the thoughts rev up and you start planning or thinking a lot. Don't think too much about any of this. Just take it in for your reflection and then as you practice, just allow yourself to be open to how or when Mara comes and shows himself. A couple other simple, skillful means that can be helpful. You can simply count the judgments. It's a good practice. What it does is it starts to disengage us from the identification, from the cathexis, from the emotional charge of the judgment, just to count them. Another skillful means, Joseph Goldstein writes about this in his book, he always, he sees the judgment, oh, you're really a crummy yogi, and the sky is blue. He adds a non-judgmental tag on every judgment. Oh, you really blew it in the last walking period, and the sky is blue to start to bring that sense of decathexis again, decharging the judgment. So we see it for what it is. It's just a thought in the mind. Another way that I like to work with it is I, what I call Woody Allen it. I humor it. You're right. I'm the worst yogi who ever lived, but I'm going to pay attention to this loneliness right now. 
You know, I'll, and because humor, as you all know, will undercut the belief, the 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 charge that's there, the identification. That's why Woody Allen's so successful. And the fourth way, another way that I work with it sometimes, I call this. Um, this is my Yamantaka practice. Yamantaka is uh, one of the Tibetan deities, uh, sometimes seen as the Lord of Death, but also known as the wrathful aspect of compassion. And for me, Yamantaka, what, what that means, what the, the function of the wrathful aspect of compassion is to prote- protect the truth. Whatever the truth is in this moment, that I'm scared or lonely or afraid, or I'm feeling bliss or peace or openness or emptiness. And so when Mara comes sometimes, I, I invoke Yamantaka and I just say, get out of here tomorrow. And I was telling Marie about this as a practice the other day. And she said, oh, my mind just always did that naturally. <laughs> and I thought that was so great. You know, and it's like, partly it's like if somebody were to come here and say, oh, you're this and this, you'd say, get out of here. What are you talking about? Who needs your opinion? When Mara comes, you can say that. You can either say, thank you for your opinion, I'm going to go back to my experience, or you can say, Mara, I don't need your opinion, and go back to your experience. Now, I'm, I'm making this very literal. It's actually not a literal, I don't do it so literally, when it's happening. It's just a feeling tone of protecting my right to be with my experience, whatever it is. That nobody and nothing has a right to take me away from the truth of my experience here and now. There's a piece that I'll mention that's also very important in working with Mara, which is compassion. Compassion for ourselves. We're not going to do this practice right. We will judge ourselves. We will judge others. We don't have to add judgment upon judgment. And so it's compassionate to be able to confess our delusion, to see when we're judging ourselves, and then stop there, not to continue the cycle of judgment, not to let Mara win. It's really the compassion of seeing very clearly we're doing the best we can. And that's true for all of us. It's really the bottom line, one of the bottom lines that wasn't on John's paper last night that we are doing the best we can, that it's our sincerity sincerity that we're really sitting on, that is really the seat that we've taken. So especially with working with ourselves, seeing we're doing the best that we can, in helping to cut or undermine Mara in terms of judging others, seeing others' sincerity, One of the yogis wrote me a note and said that it was very helpful to hear that we're all here sincerely. She said, the idea that everyone is sincere 
and has come here out of kindness has helped me when I notice my various negative judgments about other yogis and conjure up all sorts of ideas about who he or she must be as a person, I now think of the idea and this idea that everybody came out of their sincerity and kindness and it places me in a more pleasant and gentle space as I know this to be true. One other skillful means in terms of helping break the affliction of Mara in relation to one another is to see the suffering. And if you even look around for a moment, you can just see everybody here has suffered. And to see that is very important, very helpful to us to get beyond this mind this mind of Mara, of judgment. Longfellow, secret American Buddhist, put it this way. He said, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each person's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. It's really what helped me see Lyndon Johnson was to see his suffering. The last piece, which I just want to mention, is about freedom from Mara. Joko Beck wrote, she said, to enjoy, to enjoy the world without judgment is what a realized life is like. Enjoy the world without judgment is what a realized life is like. There is a freedom possible that comes as we see clearly the judging mind, as we know it and say, I see you, Mara. And then there can be periods of time, not forever, because Mara even came back after the Buddha was enlightened. But there can be periods of time here on retreat and in your life where actually the judging mind falls away. Mara goes on vacation for a while. It's really exquisite. It's such a delight to just be. Not to evaluate, not to judge, not to criticize, not to puff up but just to be here in this moment. Rumi puts it this way. He says, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. Let's sit in that field for a moment.
letting the truth of this moment reveal itself here and now, just as it is. A breath, a body, a heart, a mind, a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.